Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at your question. And yet you continue to do so. and welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. As always, I'm your host, material scientist Anna Pajajski, and this episode I talked to objects conservator Jenny Mathiason about the materials of taxidermy. We've got feathers, we've got fur, and we've even got fish. This is a cracking conversation. I think you're really going to love it. Jenny and I dialed in over the internet to speak between South Wales and London. And I started by asking Jenny her career story, her origin story, how she came to conservation. I kind of love that people do ask that. It's like, I wonder, always wonder if people expect like a grand origin story, like some sort of superhero. <laughs> it's like, well, no, uh, I was on a failed career placement once because it was my second choice. It was a fabulous place to have a work placement when I was a teenager. It was my favorite museum, but actually I was going to be an astronomer. I'd already decided. <laughs> nice. And I, I'd had a placement at uh, an observatory and they were like, actually, we can't take you. So I went to a museum instead because I love museums. But everyone kept telling me there are no careers in museums. Don't do it. And when I was there, there was this marvelous lady who rocked up in a lab coat and just went, but you could be a conservator. And I went, I don't know what that is. (laughs) And then me and lab coat lady became friends. Uh, She's great. (laughs) I've met her since. Uh, She's still a conservator. Um, And yeah, that's how I got to know what the conservation profession was. Uh, And that it was it was a museum role, but it was one that combined science and the past. And that's just everything that I wanted. And then I, I kind of, I kind of uh, didn't have. Um, then I kind of didn't commit to that because I then went on and did an undergrad in kind of heritage management, which was kind of archaeology and buildings and all the other bits that I really enjoyed. And then I was like, no, I'm serious about it now. So then I went and did a master's. <laughs> so I spent far too much money on university fees, um, and now I'm a conservator, which is lovely. Uh, it's uh, it's a great profession. I really enjoy it. It's the best job in the universe, according to me. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's it's fabulous. I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, worked in all sorts of places as well. So commercial units and small museums and big museums and all sorts of weird and wonderful collections. And yeah, it's it's great. It's great to be able to look after those things because that's that's kind of what a conservator does. You know, they kind of look after uh, collections, which is a really fun thing. 
And now you're the lab coat person. <laughs> now I'm the lab coat person. It's like a superhero cape. I love it. <laughs> um, so what, what, I guess, broadly does a, the job of a conservator actually entail day to day? Well, it does kind of depend on where you work and what sort of stuff you work with. So I am a general object conservator, which is kind of like a GP of stuff. <laughs> so it's looking after old things. And that can be in terms of making sure things are stored at a correct temperature and relative humidity so that they don't deteriorate faster than they need to. Uh, sometimes it can be more like a surgeon, so you have to actually treat things. Um, and that can take all sorts of wonderful forms as well. Um I mean, working with something like a painting is always going to be different than working on a book or a rock or a piece of, piece of pottery, for example. So there are so many different things that we can work with. Anything around us is, uh, is something that can end up in a museum or in a private collection or be something that someone treasures because, you know, conservators work with, you know, regular human beings as well. You don't have to be an institution. So, um, yeah, so we look after things that people care about, basically. Nice. Um, and do you use science to do it and material science to do it, which is really cool. Like you say, a really nice sort of um, welding together of the historical and perhaps slightly artistic side with the like scientific kind of molecular Definitely. knowledge as well. It's a really beautiful Venn diagram and I love it. <laughs> and they're right there in the middle, the sweet spot where I can be creative and I can know all these amazing things about the past and I can use science to make it better. It's really cool. Yeah, that is really awesome. Um, so because you are a, a GP of stuff, um, we had so <laughs> many options to choose in terms of what materials we were going to talk about today. But the one that we've decided was the one that you kind of jumped at first, which was the materials to do with taxidermy. Um, mm. So, yeah, I guess it'd be good to hear kind of what what are the materials of taxidermy and what are we talking about here in terms of a making practice? Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose I must stress that I don't create taxidermy. I just look after finished taxidermy. Uh, and that can be stuff that was made yesterday or it can be stuff that was made 100 years ago. Like it can really vary um, because, you know, time happens. <laughs> um, but I don't make the actual taxidermy, but I do have to work with what someone else has made. So um, when we talk about taxidermy, that's, uh, you know, your generic stuffed animals. It can be things like study skins that are kind of um, not quick and dirty because that's harsh, but the more scientific specimens. So that tends to be, you know, like it's a study skin. So it's it's a prepared animal, but it's usually stuffed with something like cotton wool and it doesn't have nice glass eyes and it doesn't do anything. It's just kind of there um, for scientific study. You know, that's why it's a study skin. Um, but then it can also be, you know, the really elegant cool things that you see like um like a whole for example um a bird of prey perched on a branch you know that's sitting in a glass case you know that's also taxidermy and sometimes you can have things that you wouldn't normally think of as something people would do taxidermy of fish eels <laughs> um bats um crocodiles yeah you know it's it's all sorts of things that can be made into taxidermy and um Yes, they can be mounted or unmounted, uh, but it's not all birds and fluffy animals, which I think is really interesting in and of itself. So um, I like the variety that comes with the territory, but obviously it involves, you know, the kind of um, the natural materials that come with 
you know, animals and living things. So it's, you know, it's skin, it's fur, it's feathers, it's beaks and it's legs and it's sometimes bones um, and all those wonderful things that, you know, make up a living thing combined then with something to hold its shape because it's usually just the skin and the fur and all the lovely external bits that we see and interact with with our eyes um, that remains of the animal on the inside. It can be all sorts of things. It depends on what the taxidermist liked using or when it was made. So it can be some, they can be stuffed with straw or cotton wool or, you know, all sorts of marvelous materials. Sometimes literally just what, what was plentiful at the time, you know. Um, and then they usually have some sort of armature inside if there's something that's mounted or supposed to hold a pose because that doesn't happen by itself. So, and that can be anything from, you know, wooden dowels to, you know, elaborate um, uh, metal structures and all sorts of things. And uh, I guess I love the variety of it because sometimes, you know, you also got... Uh, mounts and cases with them and things that make them come alive more um you would you could argue that they don't look very alive when they're in a nice glass case but you know uh, there's also the fact that sometimes they have a backdrop or you know uh, sometimes there's like a fake mountain they're sitting on or something you know and it kind of creates a scene which is really really lovely and all of that is also part of what i look after with that so varied materials for sure <laughs> yeah massively varied so what are the some of the challenges then that you come up against in terms of conservation of these taxidermy objects well, I mean, most of my challenges are probably biological in nature. So insects love things like fur and feathers. <laughs> That's a real problem. Uh, so anything that eats things in your house, you know, like the moths and the carpet beetles and that sort of thing. Anything that likes nibbling on your nice wool jumper, they also <laughs> love nibbling on taxidermy. And that is a bane of my existence is these little critters, right? Because they just go nom, 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 nom. It's a feast. <laughs> It's not even moving. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's especially bad if they get into a case and they're like, oh, wow, it's a whole buffet and I don't even have to leave the room. Yeah, great. Um, <laughs> so I think from my point of view, the biggest challenge does tend to be that they are very tasty um, to certain to certain things. Um, so they, they tend to get a little bit bold sometimes or um, have some structural issues as part of as part of having been nibbled on and that sort of thing. And because we're we're looking at them as, you know, human beings expecting to see an animal in a certain way. It's really noticeable when something has been nibbled. Like it's so, it draws the eye and you go, oh, and it takes you out of the moment. It makes you stop looking at that thing as a, as a beautiful bird. It's, it starts to look like a dead thing. And I mean, it is, but it's not usually what it's there for. It's supposed to be a beautiful thing. And, you know, that, that's a challenge um, for sure. Yeah, I guess the idea the idea with them is to, like you say, kind of create this mirage that there is a real polar bear in your living room or whatever. Yeah, it is, you know, <laughs> you know, often yes. And so if it's a bold polar bear, then it sort of takes you out of it a bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not that like bad taxidermy, for example, can't also be funny and valuable in that other ways. Um, that can also have a value. Um, but usually, you know, in a museum setting or a heritage setting, we do try to make sure that they still look like the uh, taxidermist intended mm. i suppose yeah 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 um can you think of any kind of examples that you've worked on that presented kind of any specific challenges oh um one of my favorite 
early object in my career was probably uh, a crocodile, a small crocodile, um, desk-sized crocodile, shall we say. That's relatively small, I suppose. But basically, he must have been like someone's early attempt at taxidermy. He was a beautiful specimen, but he'd been overstuffed uh, and they hadn't put armature in him. So it meant that his, his little legs were going out to the sides and they were just kind of playing in a very hilarious fashion okay. because they hadn't put any supports in um, because they were thinking, well, it's just going to be full of cotton wool. It's not going to have any weight, except anything needs to be able to support its own weight. So um, actually, I ended up having to put in little leg braces. So it had some sort of some sort of structure inside and he'd been very overstuffed. So it was someone's early attempt uh, and it was kind of more it looked more like a stuffed toy than a stuffed mm. animal. And uh, it, it just detracted from you trying to see it as a crocodile because suddenly it just became a bit comedic. Um, and that's that's probably one of my early favorites because we ended up having this wonderful conversation about do we want to make this better? Do we want to take some of the stuffing out and sew them up better? Uh, is that what we want to do so it, you appreciate the specimen? Or do we want to leave it like this and kind of tell people about this is someone's early attempt at taxidermy this is where it can go wrong and there were all these wonderful debates and in this instance we did actually take out some of the stuffing and relax the skin so we could sew it up a bit better and you know make it a bit tidier but we took loads of photos and it's I think they still talk about it in lectures um, (laughs) where it's about actually this is what we could see and that's a learning curve as well. It's a part of the object's history to see that actually he wasn't a marvellous job the first time he came in. Um, because conservators aren't all about making things perfect. Uh, sometimes it can be so much more valuable to actually see damage or uh, see early attempts at something. Uh, it just depends on what that object is for, I suppose. Mm, yeah, because I guess all of those sort of mistakes or blemishes or you know things that have gone quote-unquote wrong with an object they all tell their own story so I guess you're treading a fine line between like making sure that that story is there to be continued to be told for much longer time versus erasing the story that was there before precisely so that's why it's always a conversation and a debate about where should we go with this Um, but I think the thing about taxidermy is that often you know it the taxidermist intent, uh, much like artist intent, was that it would look a certain way. Um, like you wouldn't, if someone makes the hilarious taxidermy that has a little dress on it, you wouldn't then take off the dress because it was always meant to have the dress. Right. You know? <laughs> so, you know, it's it really depends on what the specimen's kind of function is, I suppose, um, and, and what it was meant meant to convey. Um, but in this in this case, we just felt like it was supposed to be a crocodile and not... Like, haha, look at this. So. Yeah, got yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. Um, can you think of any sort of ma- interesting material fixes or processes that you've had to do on taxidermy? Oh, I feel like uh, people, people will probably laugh at this, which is fine. Because <laughs> it's funny. Um, you know, sometimes when a specimen goes a little bit bold, um, say a squirrel um that's been nibbled on a little bit you may have to make a little squirrel toupee um and that can happen in a couple of different ways um for sure uh without giving too much away i know that's uh some conservators like uh, borrowing fur from perhaps another parish specimen because sometimes specimens are so badly damaged that you can't fix them um and you know 
if unless it's an endangered species or a highly rare specimen, that might be the more sensible approach to take that actually will look at uh, a disposal uh, and just uh, go down that route instead of spending a lot of time and money potentially fixing something. However, um, you could still, for example, keep a fur patch off um say a squirrel that that's uh, that's uh, had had to go to greener pastures um and uh, you could then transfer that so it's a it's a natural squirrel to pay or something that's uh, really on the on the up in the conservation community is to uh, t- try a bit of felting um okay. like the craft uh <laughs> like the craft activity like felting little animals but felting tiny toupees because um, you can really vary the kind of color you can get and the kind of mottled look of natural fur uh, and then and then you can just kind of place it in place which is wonderful so sometimes uh my job is just to make little toupees for people not people um animals <laughs> 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 That's so interesting. And actually it crosses over with um, the episode that I recorded with Kat Lim, who's a, a wig maker. Yes, um, yes. But <laughs> I guess, yeah, wigs for wigs for um, taxidermy animals rather than actors. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. So you've got, you've got um, these sort of like little animals that are coming on to like nibble on your... Um, objects all the time are there any i don't know are there any sort of like chemical challenges or i mean honestly mostly it's uh for from my point of view it's actually a health and safety concern because mm. a lot of taxidermy is still around because it was treated with various toxic things ah, okay. um sometimes as part of the taxidermy process and sometimes as part of the collection process of becoming museum items, for example. So in the past, you know, it's sometimes it's been, you know, completely seen as um, okay to just uh, powder everything with arsenic or other oh, toxic, wow. <laughs> toxic things to make sure that things didn't eat them. And I mean, you can you can kind of you can kind of see the logic. And in days gone by, when people didn't realize how incredibly dangerous it was, the, humans have done a lot of silly stuff uh, over the years in the name of good. And uh, I think just powdering everything with arsenic is definitely one of them. So, from a health and safety point of view, I actually have to be really careful when I work with these specimens because they can actually be really contaminated with things that are very bad for me. So you know. I use a lot of PPE and, you know, I make sure that I have a, have a nice Hoover that like has all the right uh, filters on it and that I dispose of things in a correct way and all of that, because that's, that's a big deal to me. Uh, I love working on these specimens, but I realize that um, if, if I do spend my whole life working on them, then that's, that's going to be a real health and safety concern for me. So um, there's that side of things. Um, and then, then there's also the more scientific side of things where you 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 have to weigh up options when it comes to things like for example if you want to use another like another animal's fur to perhaps create a toupee for example um that sort of thing because if someone comes along and analyzes that specimen in the future you know it will be a very confusing thing to them to find that there's a mixture of dnas on Mm. this animal like what's up with that uh, now, hopefully they wouldn't sample that particular piece that you worked on. But, you know, if they do, uh, that could be a little bit problematic, for example. So, um, 
but that's where documentation comes into it. And uh, conservators are supposed to, you know, document everything that they do so that in the future, if confusion arises, someone can consult those records and kind of look at, oh, actually, it's because this happened to it and, and that's that's OK. So there's that aspect of it um, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So someone can come along and say, oh, they put a fox toupee on that squirrel. That's why it's got yeah. Yeah, half they could, fox yeah. DNA. <laughs> Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So I guess I think some listeners will be thinking, sort of questioning why why taxidermy, I guess. Like why why is this sort of tradition of taxidermy occurred, firstly, but also why do we continue to want to conserve this stuff? Because it is, let's face it, like a bit creepy. It is a bit creepy. I mean, it's a dead zoo. Um, if, yeah, you know that's that's uh, that's that's my favorite term for natural history museums is dead zoos. Um, <laughs> I did not coin that. Other people were cleverer than me. Um, but yeah, so it, you know there is there is a certain creepy element to it, and I think that taxidermy and natural history is a bit like marmite. Either you love it or you hate it. Sometimes you know people will run shrieking from the gallery if they think that there are you know animals in the cases or they will be absolutely fascinated and ask questions and wonder why they why they're there or um how how they came to be like that and those are great conversations to have with visitors if you work in a museum by the way top-notch stuff um kids ask the best questions i'm just saying um but there's um I guess from my point of view, um, it conserves biodiversity in a way that you wouldn't normally think. So a lot of um, taxidermy, at least the museums, for example, they have very meticulous records of where things have been caught, um, how they were collected. And sometimes those are really funny notes as well, because I remember reading on some like uh, killed with a cricket bat uh, found in yard and uh, wow. or dragged in by cat in 19... 19- 29 you know it's just the most bizarre wonderful record sometimes um so not everything will have been you know maliciously killed as such a lot of uh things end up in these collections um were actually like found dead and that sort of thing and people thought it would be nice to tax to make taxidermy out of them which is interesting in of itself but that's like a whole different conversation um (laughs) but it actually shows uh, a window into biodiversity that can be really valuable um you know it might be that you 
from these records can can see that actually this type of garden bird used to be really prevalent around here because we have loads of them um but now you, they're endangered or they're on the red list and they you don't see them anymore or they don't migrate here anymore so i guess from my point of view it's it's kind of a time capsule in some ways that not only for extinct species because they're you know those are obviously very important specimens as well but even what we think think of as everyday species you know it's it's a way of um, it's a way of showing that they were here and uh, that these are the types of animals that you might have seen if you were here before i mean some of the more powerful uh, museum displays that I've seen have been things like this is what lived here a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, mm. ten thousand years ago, and I mean the range of species are amazing, and the fact that we, obviously the the specimen on display won't be ten thousand years old because that would be crazy, um, but it's you know an Arctic hare is still an Arctic hare, so you can the, it it just brings something to life in a way that is difficult to express, but I think is very emotional. And I guess that's the thing that I quite like about taxidermy is that it's it's an oddly emotional thing. M- much like you either like it or don't like it, it's also what it can elicit in you um, as a as a for example museum uh, visitor um, or collector, for example. Uh, so I think it actually has enormous value, and um, yeah, I, I think it is something that's worth looking after. Even though you might think there's no point in preserving this particular one because you know we can just go and get another one. <laughs> yeah, but what if you can't? You know, what if in fifty years they don't exist anymore? And that's like that's the world that we live in now, with climate change and all these things. You know, we can't take them for granted. It might be that this is the last specimen at some point, and yeah, maybe we should look after that. So um, yeah, I guess there's that. Yeah, from from one depressing topic of conversation to another. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you your thoughts on, um, I guess, sort of, you've answered it a little bit, but I, I sort of wanted to drill down more into kind of the, what what does what does taxidermy tell us about us, um, you know, as, as a society, I suppose? Um, I guess when I was thinking about it, I was sort of thinking about, you know, the the types of taxidermy collections that I've seen in museums, which tend to be, tropical animals in countries where there aren't tropical animals and you know these kind of like colonial trophies that were Mm, you know taken around the world as um well it's exactly that as trophies of um of quote-unquote exploration um yeah what what do you think that can tell us about our society oh that's a big question and I, I love know. it. Um, I mean, there is a lot of colonial overtones and a lot of colonial history there. There's there's a lot of reckoning to be done there. And actually, there was a really excellent uh, conference about that recently, which was done by NATSCA, which is the Natural um, Sciences uh, Association. Um, um, and uh, they did explore a lot of these topics. And yes, there is definitely the thing of trophies which are a little bit creepy in my opinion and uh, the things of exotic animals being shown off in a kind of strange dead circus kind of way Mm. um and those do make me uncomfortable and as as a person i suppose rather than a professional but uh, i think there's so much more to this fascination with the natural world which i suppose it is it's kind of like a it's a celebration of the natural world 
and it's not all trophies and it's not all about that you know sometimes it's it's just someone being overjoyed at you know hedgehogs or <laughs> owls or whatever they were obsessed with um and people's motivations vary a lot for why they want a taxidermy done and of course you do have the big hunts and you've got you know trophies and and some really unfortunate aspects of humanity in there but sometimes it's just some eccentric people who really wanted to preserve garden birds and somehow that's that's so human and it's so oddly quaint in a really weird way i mean it's very victorian in many ways but people still make taxidermy and you know as uh, you've got an excellent episode uh, about bones and all sorts of things and like people still preserve things like this and uh, it's not a fascination that's gone away, even if it's a bit grisly to do. People still collect taxidermy and not for necessarily, you know, grand imperialistic reasons. And sometimes it's just, you know, the love of an animal. Uh, and sometimes it's because of the memories associated with animals of a similar sort. I guess it's just kind of like a little time travel capsule for and for memories and stories. And if you think about humans, you know, we've always told stories about animals, uh, you know, fables are, you know, very, very old staple. And, you know, we've we lived side by side with all of these species for a very, very, very long time. And the fact that we have this strange little love story with taxidermy is kind of just a continuation of that, I think. But, yeah, it's. There are all sorts of strands to this, and I think we could be here for hours just trying to unpick them, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I like the question. I guess, I suppose it really just, it sort of just reflects us, doesn't it? The good and the bad and everything in between. It's just yeah. kind of a manifestation of our, I guess, fascination, like you say, with the, with the animal kingdom. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And sometimes, you know, there are some really questionable things out there, not just in terms of um, ethical things um, or how a specimen was obtained, but sometimes you just go, how can someone like stuffing fish this much? I mean, it's fish. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, but maybe, maybe it's to their own. Yeah, maybe it's not. It's well, there's two. I guess it could be either the fish itself is an important fish or it could just be the, the act of doing it itself is an interesting thing to do um yeah one of my former housemates actually learned how to do taxidermy and i would go outside into the garden and she'd just be sort of like slicing a mouse from sort of like chin to tail <laughs> and like turning it inside out on our kitchen not on our kitchen table on our like um on our garden table outside <laughs> and one of my vegetarian housemates was quite appalled at this but I mean, I am I a vegetarian. Yeah, I mean, there is that argument. I mean, I'm also a vegetarian. I was, I was sort of like, well, each to their own. You know, you're not harming anyone through doing this. Mm. The mouse is already dead. Um, uh, and yeah, I guess it like it's the act of doing it itself and the craft of kind of the process that might yeah, that exactly. might lead people to preserving loads and loads of fish <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's it's a hobby like any any other in some ways it's, and who are we to judge <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> if you Do are what makes a... you happy within reason <laughs> yeah if you are a fish can a fish taxidermist then get in touch <laughs> tell us why 
<laughs> Go on the podcast. Tell us about fish. <laughs> yes, please do. That'd be actually really interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what's next for you then? I suppose I'm interested to know, are there any kind of technologies that you really wish would hurry up and be invented to help you process taxidermy conservation or you know what are the next frontiers in that area oh well that's a big question i love it um i think i'm always curious what what people are thinking what people are creating in terms of like new cleaning techniques and stuff which sounds silly but some of the things that we have to have to work with and clean i mean fur is a fascinating material and it's made of it's made of these amazing you know keratin proteins and oh my god it's amazing and then feathers as well because of the way they interlock Mm. and how they how each one is shaped it means that they're both fantastic to work with and a right pain because (laughs) sometimes you know depending on what's on them um you know in terms of like dust and dirt and grime and how they've been stored getting that stuff off can can be hard or it can be super easy and i mean part of part of my fascination with you know anyone who makes these um, new cleaning techniques is well how can i better get dust off down fur <laughs> do tell me i mean i love that i love any kind of progress in that area and uh, yeah if you know if if you got any ideas do 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 hit me up i mean sometimes you know it, it's the sometimes it can be really low tech like it doesn't have to be high tech for sure i mean sometimes some some of the best advice uh, that you know I've given I've been given is sometimes something so simple as you know a microfiber cloth works a treat really mm. oh okay but not like wipe it down like use it in a certain way and it's like oh interesting you know it doesn't have to be high tech stuff um, I think uh, I'm quite pleased with the range of techniques that we have already just in general I think that we are fantastic problem solvers in the field and I think that we do regularly think of some really fun and amazing ways of making sure that we're looking after these natural history specimens the best we can and uh, a lot of it is is quite old school but that's that's okay like uh, don't knock it if it works you know um but if so equally if someone comes comes over and says that you know i found i found a new way of doing this and it's amazing you should try it i am all ears as well because (laughs) you know that's that's how we progress as professionals as well um, but I don't think there's a specific problem where I'm like, I'm dying to know how to do this. Mm. Um, not at the moment anyway. Or at least I feel like there might already be people who have solved that problem. Um, and I just haven't met them yet, which is kind of a it's kind of a solipsistic way of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> and how about you personally? What's next for you? What have you got coming up? Oh, gosh. Well, um, I've just started freelancing. So if you do have taxidermy that needs looking after, let me know. I don't just do taxidermy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yes. uh, And uh, yes, uh, I think for me, it's uh, it's mostly I'm I'm taking I'm taking on projects like that, which is lovely. And uh, do get in touch if you know you need a conservator doing all sorts of objects. If you need a GP of stuff, you know where to find me. Um, <laughs> I really hope you've got business cards with that on it. <laughs> I really should, shouldn't I? That should totally be my new tagline. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that being said, um, if people have if people have found our chat um, interesting and inspiring today, can you recommend any sort of links or I guess when places open up, actual physical places to go out of our front doors to go and see oh some cool taxidermy? Yes, absolutely. I mean, obviously 
obviously the Natural History Museum in London if you can. But failing that, you would be surprised the amazing amount of stuff that will be in your local like local authority museum if you've still got one uh if they're still around they will have some amazing stuff that's uh that's on display and sometimes that's people's absolute favorite stuff i know that a place that i used to work at there was there was this big bear uh that was completely bleached everyone thought it was polar bear but he's actually a brown bear who's just had too much sunlight um and and he had bald patches where people would touch him or hug him and uh, I had to come to terms with that because I was like, really? They're hugging <laughs> the bear? Is that okay? But, you know, ultimately it was a way that people expressed affection for, you know, the museum's collection. Mm. And, I was, and uh, in the end, I decided that that was posit- positive damage. You know, that was that was something that was nice. Like they were interacting with an object in a way that um, was meaningful to them. And ultimately, what should museums be about if it's not about meaning? So... Um, so you know, I had to I had to put down my urge to be like, no, don't touch it, and be like, you know what, actually, just be careful. <laughs> nice. Oh, that's such a but perfect yeah. place to stop. I think. Oh, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, if people want to look you up, um, if they've got any taxidermy or any other <laughs> questions, or <laughs> want to want to see what you're up to, um, what are your links online? Oh, you should look up Curiosa Conservation. You should uh, go follow me on Twitter. I'm Curated Jenny on Twitter. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, yeah, just just go and just shoot me an email or say something nice. I'm sure you can link to some of my things in your show notes. Yep. Um, and yeah, I would love to talk to you about taxidermy or other things. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got an amazing podcast as well called The C yeah. Word. Indeed, which, the Seaward the Conservatives podcast, which you can listen to if you want to hear more about our crazy lives as conservators, which uh, do get quite crazy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And there's an episode with me on it as well. So yes, there is. Be able to about testing it. materials. Definitely listen to that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A familiar voice on there. Um, fantastic. Indeed. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure to chat to you. Um, Thank you for having me. And I can't wait to go to my local museum. (laughs) You should. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the fantastic Jenny Mathiason on all things taxidermy. Thanks so much to her for taking the time to come and talk to me for the pod. Do check out Jenny's pod, which she presents with former handmade guest Chloe Rumsey. That's called The C Word, The Conservators Podcast. Give them five stars and while you're at it, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts as well. If you want to say hello, you can do so on Twitter at Realtalk, that's R-I-A-L Talk, and follow us on Instagram at HandmadePod. I don't know why I always say us in this podcast outro. This podcast is literally just me in my bedroom. (laughs) I guess it's just less lonely to say us. As always, a huge thanks to Dave Shepard for the marvellous cover art on this podcast and to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. That's all for this time. Next week, I'll be talking to comedian, author and history buff Izzy Lawrence about the materials and making practices of the suffragettes. So until then, thanks a lot for listening. Take care and I'll see you next time on Handmade. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.